Hello, and welcome back to Crisonia Conversations, where entrepreneurs, experts, and investors explore change in the global food system. I'm Sarah Mock, your host for today's discussion. Today, we're talking about changing perceptions and demands in food preparation and education spaces, particularly for members of Generation Z. Now, there's a lot of tension and opportunity to change the conversa these conversations happening around changing nutritional preferences and habits, and to push ahead with more plant-forward and health-conscious approaches. To help us dive into how younger generations are driving shifts in food and culinary spaces, we're joined today by chef educators Ken Rubin and Dan Merrick. Chef Ken Rubin is an educator, food anthropologist, and chief culinary officer at Ruby Online Culinary School. He has developed ethnographic research methods to understand how people learn to cook and is recognized for his expertise in education and training, food culture research, health, wellness, and product development. We also have joining us Chef Dan Merrick. He runs the Whole Kids Foundation's Healthy Teachers Program, which is designed to provide teachers and school staff with nutrition inspiration and healthy cooking techniques to, to transform their own well-being, serve as healthy role models for their students, and be change agents in their own communities. Dan is also a board member of Slow Food Austin. Now, before we dive into some questions uh, with both Dan and Ken, thank you both for joining us. Uh, but just a little bit of information for our folks joining us live today. Uh, please let us know what your questions are. You can go ahead and put those into the chat feature uh, right in your web platform. As those come up, I'll be voicing those to our uh, panelists here and asking your questions live. Uh, so make sure you include your name and organization so that we can recognize where the question is coming from and just keep those coming throughout the conversation. Uh, so now that we've got a bit of housekeeping cleared up, um, Dan, Ken, thank you both so much for being here. Uh, you know, I kind of want to start this conversation with with just t asking the both of you, um, you know, this conversation is driven so much by change and how things are changing right now. From your the both of your perspectives, what's the most important difference in this new young generation when it comes to food, uh, where they kind of set themselves apart from the generations that came before them? Well, I think that this generation has got a pretty big difference between the one from before them because they've really grown up in a different way than the generation before them. Um, you know, there's um, it's a much more interactive with videos, looking up things on YouTube. Um, you know, I always say that uh, the previous generation grew up with Barney and this generation grew up with people like Alton Brown. Um, you know, having chefs uh, as something to look up to is a pretty big change. And that has led to um, kids really being interested in food, um, not only flavor profiles and textures, but knowing where the food is coming from, uh, where it's being grown, how it's being grown. And it's a pretty big difference that's happening um, in that generation that is uh, adversely also, you know, it's, it's actually uh, affecting their parents at the same time because the kids are getting so much information on it as well. Yeah, that's a great, great comment, Dan. I'll just add to that, that I think that there is an amazing transformative effect when you have um, this intergenerational um, sort of combination of things that are happening at the same time. You have boomers who are aging and realizing the effects of food on their health. You have younger people being raised um, in a new media landscape, a new environment where food is about more than just the chef and the food on the plate in front of you, but also about the story of the food, 
how it got to us, the environment and health and other stories. So part of what I think is driving this is really a combination of factors. Um, certainly younger people are driving a lot of the change, but that also comes in a context of, uh, of what came before and what's, and what's gonna happen next. Absolutely, I so many interesting kind of things to tee off on there, but I wanna start by talking about something that both of you care a lot about, which is the idea of, of uh, one of these transitions, which is newer generations being more interested in scratch cooking versus maybe opening a box or, or you know, doing a reheated or, or prepared food. Um, Talk to us a little bit about what's what's driving that change and what it means in terms of maybe different outcomes for health, nutrition, kind of all those related factors. And I'll let you jump in there first. <laughs> sure, yeah. So with Whole Kids Foundation, um, we also run a program specifically for schools that are wanting to go back to scratch cooking. Um, and it's kind of a big thing to be able to jump on um, because, you know, it's not like just a light switch where you can just turn it on and instantly the next day you're doing all scratch cooking. It's more kind of like a lever that takes time to be able to pull from one side to the other, making these huge changes in procurement to, you know, just actual culinary techniques that the staff has to learn um, from just opening a box and heating it up. Um, and that, uh, that change is actually, we're finding it happening all over the country um, where, schools are wanting to go back to scratch cooking. Um, and that is being, um, you know, that's being demanded basically by, by the kids and the parents. Um, and that's why they're making these big changes. Um, and it's just something where we've kind of learned in nutrition that you're gonna get a better nutrition out of something that's actually more fresh, you know, directly, you know, the farm to table thing is a very real thing that schools like to, um, you know, try to focus on. They can't go 100% farm to table, you know, but they can make some of those connections with farms a little bit better as well. So that transformation of just the school system where a lot of kids depend on where they get their food from, um, making that systematic change across the entire country is really uh, helping to kind of move that lever um, towards scratch cooking, both, you know, for the kids at the school, but also looking at what opportunities they can do that at home in the same way. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just add, I'm really, I've always been fascinated by this idea of scratch cooking and sort of the underpinnings of that and, um, you know, making a hard distinction between you know, processed food in a box and scratch cooking. I think there's a lot of things that are in between there. Um, that allow people to step into cooking and not feel as um, intimidated or scared. I think one of the things I've learned in all the time I've spent as an advocate for cooking and for scratch cooking um, is the reality that people face this tension of um, cooking something from scratch in its entirety and then some of the time or the lack of skills, uh, lack of uh, availability even of the acquisition of certain ingredients or, or the skills themselves. Um, in there. But I think that, you know, the work that I'm doing with Ruby and the work that Dan does certainly is all pushing towards that. It's all pushing towards um, a world where we can, um, you know, begin to kind of normalize this idea that food comes whenever possible, as much as possible in a more whole form. And that a human being, a community has a collective responsibility for preparing those foods and serving those foods and sharing those foods. And that there's a lot of inherent good that comes in maintaining some of those uh, cultural rituals and those cultural norms around how meals are prepared and shared and the value that we attribute to the act of eating. So for me, it's not 
just about the importance of cooking. I mean, Ruby is really about cooking and cooking technique and un unlocking that world for people. But there are such other implications for agriculture, for community, uh, for families. When you think about cooking, not just in terms of the final result, the meal on the on the table, but also um, all the important things that have to happen along the way. Yeah, Ken, I want to keep you in the hot seat for a minute um, and and talk a little bit about that full spectrum because I think there is a lot of focus, especially in this space, on the distance between that kind of box cooking versus scratch cooking. But on on your side of the spectrum, there's also the distance, the difference between you know at home scratch cooking and and professional chef cooking. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that gap between you know fancy high culinary art cooking and the distance between that and home cooking and then also between box cooking creates you know some or perpetuate some of the disparities or problems we see in people feeling like scratch cooking is accessible yeah it's a great it's a great question i think there is obviously some tension in there um you know my background as a chef and chef educator you know starting with large you know brick and mortar professional chef schools and then about eight years ago moving to ruby really helped inform the way I see the role of the chef, even the role of um, the chef as the spokesperson uh, in some ways in terms of communicating things around cooking and the the the, the need for cooking. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always advocated for, and I think this is not necessarily indicative of how, you know, rank and file people view chefs or view the food media, is that there are, um, you know, millions and millions of people who work with food are not producing fancy food they're not producing elite food they're producing everyday food for everyday people and they're doing it day in and day out we don't know their names they're not on the cover of time magazine they're not celebrities um they're just rank and file people who are doing a you know doing their their job and doing a good job at it and making families and communities really happy with with more regular food and a lot of what we do at ruby is really we train people at that most basic entry level so the work at ruby is not about training michelin chefs or fancy chefs most of the people that we work with on the professional side are um, rank and file cooks. They're line cooks. They work in community centers. They work in hospitals. They work in hotels. Um, uh, you know, all different kinds of settings where people are needing to have food. You know, universities, campus dining, <laughs> these sorts of things. Um, I think that there is a role to have, um, you know, well-known chefs, chef spokespeople, advocates. Uh, promote food that is at a high level. It does speak to aspiration and excitement and innovation. But I think that that's actually one of the areas where I try to move away from and say, you know, most food that we eat is not that food. It's comforting food. It's food that has to be realistic on cost, on time, on um, how we handle it, on even what it means to us culturally. Um, a lot of those, you know, high cuisines are just, it's more like theater. It's not necessarily something that, that resonates at that deeper cultural level for people. So um, I think it's important, but you know, I always try to shift the conversation more towards what are those more um, everyday eating experiences that we need to improve? And how does Ruby uh, play a hand in um, providing better educational access to those people? Yeah, I wanna, Dan, I wanna bring you into that same conversation and just, you know, from the educational perspective, I think that also kind of creates a barrier because when people think of, educating students or children about cooking it's often is frame, framed as this like you know if it can't become a career if if they can't become professional chefs then what's the point um i'm sure you you don't believe that you don't uh, ascribe to that um give us a little bit of the other side of you know what 
why should kids learn about cooking whether or not they can monetize it essentially? And just the simple need to feed yourself, I think is the number one reason. I think that, you know, in the 1950s, America really started kind of, I don't want to say dumbing down, but that's basically what it was, their food, to be able to make it really quick and easy. Um, and now we're looking at ways to be able to educate um, the kids, parents, you know, just all kinds of people on just the basic things of just kind of things like knife skills, like how to be able to hold a knife, how to be able to cut different ingredients, how to do it quickly and easily to be able to make meals um, that the whole family can enjoy. We find in a lot of schools where they're used to opening just boxes and heating it up in the oven that they, you know, finding an, a regular chef knife in the kitchen is really hard to do in some schools. So just starting with that little point of showing people how to, you know, uh, how to cut an onion properly, you know, how to dice up a pepper is a really good start. Um, and for kids, it's a great way for them to be um, exploring food in a different way that an older generation might not have. Sometimes um, in an older generation, it was looked down upon a little bit to be able to be cooking. Um, and people were like, oh no, I don't cook. And they took that as a pride factor. This generation looks at it the exact opposite way saying like, no, I actually know how to do this. I actually can make this food. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to see. And that kind of stretch between, you know, the box cooking to, to to complete scratch cooking, um, as Ken said, there there's a wide variety of things in between that. Um, one of the techniques being like you know uh, speed scratch, which is very common in a lot of schools too, where you're not maybe making the tomato sauce from scratch, but you're making everything else in that lasagna from scratch. Um, and that's a great step, you know, we want to be able to have people be able to take it um, where it's comfortable for them to be able to make that happen. And part of this is learning along the way. So, um, you know, if, if you're teaching kids, that's great. You know, a lot of people, um, you know, are really reluctant to, you know, giving kids tools to be able to cook, but it's something um, as long as you're teaching them how to properly use them, it can be a game changer for them. Um, and really taking that knowledge can help them throughout their lives from going, um, you know, when they go off to college or leave the house, having those skills when they first leave their home is something that I think is essential to everybody. Um, and it's really, um, it's great that that's coming more into focus now to be able to give that option to so many kids. Um, and using those whole foods is a great cost productive way to do it, but also really focusing at health um, and nutrition um, and looking at being able to get a wide variety of nutrients um, from your food is a great place to be able to start. Absolutely. I, I want to bring in some, we're getting some great comments uh, from folks who are following along. Leslie Bonchi, uh, you know, commented on, um, it's not just about you know, fresh or whole. It's also about what people can afford and, and what the budget is. And uh, she pressed about it, it being more all-encompassing and less elitist in our food. Um, and I think that's a great jumping off point to have that conversation about accessibility. I think um, Pablo Velasquez also notes, you know, 35% of the people in a survey in Memphis about who uh, responded about how they, why they don't cook said it's because they only have a microwave at home. Um, so, you know, there's all these kind of perceived barriers out there and a lot of conversations I think around cooking kind of come down to um, if you care enough, you'll make it work or if you care enough, you'll figure out how to afford the food or the tools or, or the time. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, those, the, the real barriers that people face and what, 
um, I don't know what, what you guys think are potential solutions maybe that exist out there and how you're even working on these problems. Well, yeah, it's, it's great. It's a great conversation. I think that the issue of equity of, of, of access and the equity of cooking is one that is, you know, ever more present right now more than any other time, really for many reasons. Um, you know, part of what I think about when I think about food is the entire food system. And there are absolutely points of access, points of um, infrastructure that are completely broken. I think that the pandemic has, um, you know, put a big spotlight on how various parts of our food system um, from start to finish were really very, very fragile. Um, I think that when it comes to learning to cook, one of the things that we focus on at Ruby is really meeting people where they are. So number one, you know, it used to be that you had to go to a culinary school and you'd have to spend a lot of money, tens of thousands of dollars, potentially going to get, you know, into debt to get that, that, that uh, cooking education. You know, Ruby's trying to work away from that, both in the professional and the workforce side, but also just the, hey, how do you get access to quality instruction? So part of it is what do you do with, when you get those ingredients? Part of it is the way we like to teach is if you have um, a knife and a pot and a pan and a, and a heat source, there's a whole range of things that we can teach you to cook um, on a budget, on you know just a few dollars, let's just say. Of course, there's always access about where do, you, where do you get those ingredients or how do you get those legumes or those frozen vegetables, even whatever it might be. Um, but ultimately for us, it's all about trying to find and create solutions for those people so that if they do have the access, if they do have a, um, a way to you know receive those ingredients, if they do have a single burner or a microwave or a toaster oven or some other heat source, that there are things that, that they can actually reasonably uh, prepare. Um, for me, nothing's off limits. When students come to us and they say, hey, I want to learn to cook with you. I live in an apartment with one burner. I don't have an oven. What do I do? You know, oftentimes we can say, wow, you can still do this large percentage of the course. There's all the things you can do with literally just a burner and a, and a pan uh, and learn to cook and, and feed yourself and show a lot of success. For a lot of people, I think the conversation, the, the meta narrative around food is one of being defeated and having barriers and having fears. So I find that when you give people even small wins, it gives them that optimism and that um, inspiration to say, wow, yeah, I, I learned to cook these 10 things just in a single frying pan with a knife and a cutting board. Like, that's amazing. Now I can do all these different things. Um, sometimes it's very, very eye-opening to people. I don't think it's intuitive, by the way, for people to say, oh, I have a pan and a knife. Here's the 100 things I can make. Um, I think it takes some instruction. I think it takes some hand-holding. It takes some support, some motivation. It has to be done in a way that makes sense for that audience. Um, oftentimes, peer-to-peer -peer helps. Uh, but none of those things are without... Um, you know, finding some good opportunity for overcoming those those different challenges. I also, just to add on to what Ken said here too, um, you know, access is always one of those hard things as well. So not only just to the tools, and I, I completely agree with Ken, and I think that, you know, starting out with like a 10 recipe kind of repertoire is a great thing to do where you, you start off with one recipe and then start adding things to it. So you can start planning out your weeks a little bit better. So you're not wasting as much food as well. So you can plan ahead when you're doing things. Um, as far as food access goes too, there are some great opportunities. Um, you had mentioned 
Memphis, Tennessee. I know, um, you know, our sister organization, Whole Cities Foundation, has um, given some grants to some local uh, organizations like Knowledge Quest and Landmark Training and Development Company that runs uh, food pantries and farmers markets there specifically um, that, you know, cater to, um, you know, these areas that uh, they can actually, you know, get fresh produce that they might not have been able to get. And um, there are great opportunities there too, where they're, um, you know, accepting uh, different things like SNAP at food pantries and different uh, farmers markets to be able to make fresh produce more accessible. Um, you know, there's also, you know, you'd mentioned plant-based at the beginning too. That, that's actually a great place to be able to focus, like how much like, uh, like dried beans and dried rice cost to be able to make is a relatively cheap undertaking to be able to start off with something like that. In our school systems, the average lunch is about $2 to $2.50 per kid. So if you think about how to be able to make that in mass to be able to transfer, it actually, you can make that happen at home pretty um, easily too. So just knowing a couple rudimentary skills and like Ken said, having a little bit of instruction around where to kind of start um, really helps to give people wings a little bit so they can take recipes and alter them to be able to make them with the ingredients that they have accessible to them um, and to fit different flavor profiles at the same time. Because at the end of the day, it has to taste really good for people to be able to enjoy their food, not just getting the nutrients out of it. So just taking those small amount of steps by learning a couple different recipes, looking for opportunities that you can actually get food that's affordable um, and really nutritious at the same time. So part of that comes with a little bit of nutrition education too. So, um, you know, at, at Whole Kids, we do a lot of education for teachers so they can be better mentors to kids through food about their own nutrition, you know, so they can really start off by having a good basis of what, okay, this is a great basis. You know, we have um, one of our, our golden rules is eat a rainbow, you know, and that basically equates to the more you eat different colors, the more vitamins and nutrients you're actually getting. So um, just thinking about different things like that, when you're buying things at the market, at the grocery store, even at a bodega, you know, being able to look at different things to be able to really fill up your, um, your palate for one, but also get all the nutrients that you're looking for on affordable and easy way to be able to make that happen. Uh, thanks again, Leslie and Pablo, for, for those comments. Please, folks, keep those coming. Um, any questions or comments you'd have, we'd love to make them a part of this conversation. But first, I'm going to ask, uh, take my moderator's prerogative and ask a, a really important question, I think, at this especially at this moment. Um, you know, I think for so many of the communities that would be so impacted by, you know, a more nutritious diet, a more nutritious, um, you know, more investment in just food security, sovereignty, all of those things, are primarily people of color and communities of color here in the US. Memphis is a great example. Um, I think we, the three of us, are, are a particularly homogenous group of white people. Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's a, a critique that we hear a lot of the kind of these food chef, food education discussions is basically it's being led by a lot of um, white male voices when so much of the cooking and responsibility for cooking and grocery shopping and feeding families and children falls primarily on the shoulders of, of women and people of color. Um, so I wonder if you could speak to that, speak to how you guys struggle with that in your work, um, how you've faced that. And uh, what does that mean for how this conversation needs to proceed? Yeah, it's an important question. It's an important commentary, I think, in terms of where we are right now as a country and the things that matter for people. 
um, you know, it's something that I've been interested in and struggled with for a long time, you know, being a chef, being a food anthropologist, working a lot of my life outside the U.S. and doing a lot of work specifically with women, with 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 Mexican women, with uh, indigenous women um, in terms of my own work, my own research. Um, you know, these are not new questions, but we don't we don't have the answers. I don't have the answers. So you know, part of why I do the work I do at Ruby is because of the implicit ability for us to level the playing field and increase access to take what would have, you know, what would have been in the past a 50 or $80,000 experience and giving it to people at a cost at that $1,000 price point potentially. So there's, there's not the debt, there's not the risk, there's not those other things, but there's all the upside. Um, working directly with employers has been important with us because we see that part of the solution is coming from the industry itself. It's not a top down, hey, we're the educators and we're going to teach the world and then that's going to kind of trickle into the industry. We think the industry bears a responsibility to, to train and to advance individuals from within the ranks. And we do a lot of that by how we structure our training and how we price it and work with our, our large partners um, all around the world. We have tens of thousands of employees. And I think another area is really our work with um, high schools and community colleges and community kitchens. Um, even before the pandemic, Ruby was very invested in working with organizations like Fair Start and Catalyst Kitchen and DC Central Kitchen and lots of regional food banks to provide that culinary instruction piece that we knew was missing. So in other words, when they get access to product and there's people in need who receive material to cook with, a lot of it was, well, what do I do with it? How do I cook these whole foods and make sense with it in a culturally competent way? Um, so I think, you know, by no means as a white male of privilege who is in a position to help orchestrate these things, do we have solutions, but we're certainly making um, a lot of efforts. And I think having these conversations in an open, authentic way is, is part of the way there, um, but certainly a lot to still do. I'd like to add on to that too. At Whole Kids Foundation, we really, we really try to focus on um, who isn't at the table. Um, you know, no pun intended at that, but, and what voice is really not being represented in the room? And how can we meet them where they are? Like what barriers are in their way as well? And each of those is a unique situation that you have to address. Um, and it's going to be different in every single community. So if you're going to work in a community, you have to think about the diversity and the cultures of that community to be able to meet them where they are. Because, um, you know, Ken and I going into, um, you know, a different uh, restaurant or a different, um, you know, a school system or, uh, you know, some of the work that Ken does with us, different hotel systems, um, you know, the food and the culture in those cities is vastly different than um, just the one that could just be 100 miles away. And looking at that diversity is something that makes that community that much stronger. So I think that, um, you know, in the positions that we are in, that we are in personally, that we have to be able to look at that first and foremost before even, you know, opening the door to be able to look at what the, the standout, um, you know, dishes, cuisines, cultures, all those different things are, because really at the end of the day, it's that diversity that really makes up that, 
that uh, culture of the community and really helps to bring everybody to the table. Um, and by keeping an eye out for who isn't being represented at that table, and then making sure that you're actually pulling them into it, even if they can't physically be there, you know, um, talking to them to be able to help, um, you know, tell their story at the same time, I think is something that is uh, hugely um, our responsibility, you know, at this moment to be able to bring that in where we can step back and let somebody else's voice just come through much, much clearer. Absolutely. Uh, I, we have another question. I think that it, I'm interested to hear your uh, responses to because keeping in mind that this, a big part of the Crusonia community is our, our folks in the investment space who are looking for ways to leverage uh, you know, financial investments, nonprofit investments, kind of social impact investments to really make a big impact, a quick impact is, you know, as soon as we can to work on some of these issues. Um, uh, Pablo Velasquez said, uh, again, at LifeDoc Health, uh, that they're working on a way to launch self-sustainable prepared meals that are tasty, affordable, and convenient um, in some of the neighborhoods where they see these challenges. Um, I, I, what are your guys' thoughts on those kind of solutions? You know, is is a blue apron style cooking kit that is maybe uh, priced in a different way to make it more accessible to, to people who maybe don't have time or the resources to go grocery shopping or who live in communities where there's kind of food apartheid? What, what do you guys see out there as kind of new, innovative, cutting edge solutions of people who are tackling um, some of these problems in a different way? Dan, you wanna go ahead? Sure. Uh you know, I think that when it comes to things like Blue Apron and different, um, you know, meal organizations, I think it's great. I think that, you know, no matter how somebody starts on their food journey, wonderful. We have to be able to support them in that. And if it's something where they don't feel comfortable at all cooking, having something like a service where the meal's already prepared, if that's the way they get their nutrition, that's the way they get their nutrition. I personally would love it if they had something where they mixed it in with something. So if it's a complete meal that they, you know, had some like, okay, here's some greens I can add into it fresh instead of having them, you know, cooked until they're gray or something like that. I'm not saying that any of those organizations do that, but, um, you know, really kind of looking at those um, ways that people can kind of look to be able to put their own stamp and their own signature on food, I think is really important. And it goes back to that cultural diversity thing too. So in those, those meal kits that people are getting, um, you know, is it the same that comes across the entire, you know, country? Is it different depending on where you're at? If you're in some place like completely diverse, like Washington, D.C., you know, how do you look at that if you have a huge Ethiopian population um, or a huge Dominican population, you know, and kind of looking at those different ways to be able to meet your audience, to be able to get the biggest nutrition and the biggest bang for their buck. So I think that it's great that they have meal kits like that. Um, and if they are getting in systems to be able to help people afford um, those things is great. I just wish that it was a little bit a little bit more mixed to be able to add fresh ingredients into something, to be able to make it more nutritious nutritious, um, better flavor, because the fresher the food is, the, be the better the flavor is going to be as well, too. So, um, yeah, so I, I definitely say it's a great thing to be able to start um, that way, but I'd like to be able to help that as a starting block and build upon it. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree. I think that there are, um, you know, just like we had in, in the other conversation about scratch versus processed foods, there's different gradations of, I think, what people might find to be successful with uh, food delivery, meal delivery. I'm really most fascinated really by the model of distribution. I think that the Blue Aprons and the large food delivery companies have done 
amazing work figuring out logistics and transportation and distribution and some of these things. I don't think they're necessarily applying it in the right ways. I think there's huge opportunities to apply food distribution to Dan's point at the sort of hyper local nano level at the neighborhood level even and looking at it from the whole food system perspective of what foods available via just surplus from food producers, whether it's a primary producer like a farmer or whether it's a secondary producer like a food service company that might have 10 or 20 percent excess food on a single day and not something not a place to go put it or a bakery that might have a huge amount of bread on a single day and not a place to go put it so i think there's a lot of really um, creative community-based solutions that can also solve for some um, hunger alleviation from employment even opportunities all those boxes need to be packed by someone i'd rather they then be packed in a community in a neighborhood than in some warehouse someplace that no one even knows about um, I also see it as a way to create a different type of community involvement. Again, I always go back to food being an amazing cultural connector. And if it's more than just a box of food that you get, whether it's ingredients or uh, prepared food, if, the, with, if embedded in the transaction is more than just the transaction of someone giving a box of food to someone, but there's a sharing or an exchange or an education or some other follow up or piece that you can build from, that's the part I'm also particularly interested in because then you have the potential from a cultural perspective, speaking as an anthropologist, to reproduce cultural norms and activities and behaviors so that the behavior is not knock on the door, receive the food, close the door and eat the food. It's an exchange where now it's like learning something, sharing something. Maybe that person at the receiving end becomes a person who becomes Part of the distribution at some point just as um, kind of a case study um, so i think that <laughs> there's a lot in there I, I would rather the system not just be closed to say yeah we have a need let's just put food on the front door and kind of walk away i know that's not what they're doing but i see just so much opportunity uh, for greater engagement on those fronts you know just to, to add on to that again too i think that you know those systems could partner really well with those local farms and you know getting partnerships with community gardeners and community gardens as well um, i think csas you know um, are a hugely beneficial thing for both the farmer and the customers to be able to get hyper local foods and really um you know by becoming a member of a CSA or something like that, it helps the farm as well as the customer as well. Because one of the things I love about CSA is you're never sure quite what you're going to get. So if you get something, you have to learn how to cook it if you've never seen it before. I think that's a great learning opportunity for some people as well. Now, different CSAs come at different price points as well, but um, you know you can get kind of bigger ones or smaller ones depending on um, where you are in the country. But to be able to see some of those um, you know, kind of like Blue Apron programs to be able to partner up with those local food distributors um, and farms, I think would be a huge win-win, um, not only for, um, you know, the people that are receiving the food, but the economic, uh, you know, situations for the farmers as well. Thanks, Dan. Uh, I want to apologize uh, to Pedro Velasquez. Sorry, I uh, misspoke your first name. That was just a... a 
communication snafu on our end. Uh, but moving on, we have another question from Paul Noglos that I think you guys will be interested to tackle. Uh, is it too early to take away any learnings from COVID in terms of lifestyle and nutrition? I think, you know, Paul says there was a fear that people would go into, would devolve into eating kind of the worst possible processed foods in the midst of the pandemic. And I think we've seen that that wasn't really the case. So I'm curious what you all think. Um, one, what have people, what has been the trends in food and nutrition during the pandemic? And do you think that they're going to stick? Uh, I can only speak to what, you know, I have observed and what I've noticed. We've definitely at Ruby seen some very interesting trends. Um, you know, number one, just across the board, increased interest in learning to cook. Uh, so a lot more uh, desire, a lot more demand for basic food literacy, basic foundational cooking skills. Ruby really focuses on cooking techniques and methods and kind of the whys and hows you know, kind of uh, behind cooking, not just, oh, we have the most recipes or anything like that. So people coming to us really want to learn to cook because they want to cook. Um, a lot of them are just regular people who are at home cooking food that they wouldn't classify as being healthy or wellness oriented. Um, and then we have a whole nother consumer market, which is 100% focused on health and wellness outcomes for themselves. And we've seen that market at Ruby expand um, greatly. So we have certain partners, uh, in particular a partner called Forks Over Knives, which uh, we co-developed and co-built a program with them that, that, we, um, that we deploy at Ruby, which is for, um, for cardiac patients and for other people who want uh, disease reversal or disease reversal support. And programs like that, where there's something very specific and very acute, have been um, in very, very high demand, I think in part because people have a much greater awareness around their own personal health and the relationship between what they eat, how they live and, and their health. Um, so we've, we've seen it on both fronts. Um, the, the general just need to cook and also the, the more health focused audience. I think it's interesting the way that COVID has impacted the way that people cook at home too. Um, you know, when it first started, you saw like everybody doing like sourdough starters and baking as much bread as they could possibly do. And baking was a huge, huge thing. So, you know, lots of gluten out there, which is great, you know, um, but uh, I think that kind of the people that kind of started off in this area of like, um, you know, just kind of throwing things together are getting more practice over this, you know, uh, the, the longer they've been stuck inside. And those people that used to go to restaurants every single night um, are stuck in a place where they have to cook. And the more nights and the more days that they're doing that, the more that they're improving, the easier it's getting for them. And the more they're kind of waking up to being like, wow, I could have you know, paid $25 for this meal at a restaurant, but here I am making it at home for four people for $25 and it might taste better. You know, so I think that that's an, an unbelievably great thing that we're going through. And to Ken's point, you know, Ruby has taken off um, in their online classes as well. I've seen the same surge at Whole Kids where we used to do all of our classes uh, live in person and we switched to an online version um, in December of last year, just by pure coincidence. Um, and we saw a huge surge in our online classes taking off to be able to make this happen where we're meeting teachers and educators where they are um, to be able to kind of make that jump for themselves. So I think that it's interesting to be able to see uh, cooking in 
you know, in the time of COVID, because where before food was, you know, huge on, on Instagram, and we're seeing all these different things where, um, you know, like YouTube videos and all those things and how to cook, but COVID made it even more hyper, you know, focused on that. Like, how do we be able to, how do we get online to be able to figure out what kind of great meal I might've gotten at a restaurant, you know, and looking at those maybe celebrity chefs to be able to make something or looking at those chefs that aren't celebrities, but are making something that their great grandmother made and saying like, and I think that's one of the great things I love um, about that food culture through COVID as well as, you know, before um, things like, and Instagram would be like, here's this one recipe and people are very protective of it. But now you're seeing people that are like, you know, I like that recipe, but how can I change that to meet the tastes of my family? And it's becoming this kind of shared culture of food where people are sharing recipes again and looking at ways to be able to um, take food and alter it to be able to meet their um, the, the demands of their income, the demands of their family tastes. Um, you know, if, if you're going to make it kid friendly or um, if it's something that's palatable for just adults, you know, um, and I think that's a great thing that we're seeing where it's not so much the focus on the unique plating and the fanciness of the dish, but the flavor profiles, looking at ways to be able to get um, families involved in the food as well. So you see a lot more kids cooking now because it's an activity that they can do with their parents um, now because everybody's stuck at home. So it's a, it's a great transformation in the food culture that has really kind of blown off the walls of, you know, the box that we were in before. So I look at it as a huge positive aspect on that food culture that we're in um, to be able to get more knowledge for people. And honestly, for people that didn't have skills to be able to build their level, their skill level, um, you know, day by day. And it's a wonderful thing to be able to see on that end of COVID. So at least we're getting something positive out of that. I want to ask Dan kind of just a follow up to that uh, related to Richard Miller's question about, you know, what can be done to encourage more healthy eating and the kind of the nutritional benefits. Uh, you know, Crusonia conversations are very focused on the idea that food is health and, and helping, you know, I think one of the big questions of the next, you know, several decades will be how do we make that connection for folks that we to, to understand that food is more than just kind of a recreational activity or an essential to life, but is actually like closely related to things like health expenses and, and medical expenses. Um, so in, I, Dan, I want to push this to you first, because I think we, a lot of people, and I'm sure um, whole kids in a lot of ways saw this as well, you know, think of school as a place to um, intercede with children to to expose them to another adult that isn't their parents and, and give them opportunities to get kind of a different outlook um, on food and then COVID happened and then kids didn't go to school anymore. Kids were kids were out of school for a very long time and now they might be back but in a limited capacity and maybe they aren't eating at school or maybe they aren't there for the whole day. So I don't know what as we move forward, what does the you know, eating outside the home versus eating inside the home, how do those kind of things change? And Ken, I'm gonna bring you in on the second part of this question to ask, you know, we also have seen we went from a, a culture where everyone went, you know, to work and then got lunch at a sandwich place near the office, something like that. And we've switched to, you know, you have, if we're all at home now, you have to make lunch with your family and you all sit down together and are, are people going to want to go back to that? Yeah. So that's actually a really good point. Um, you know, the food system has changed quite a bit in the past, um, even four years through, you know, the USDA is largely in control of what, 
meals are being put on plates at schools and regulations got strict for a while then they loosened up a little bit and because of COVID a lot of people are like well, what are we going to do because of this um, I love that Whole Kids really kind of jumped in to be able to help support um, these different districts in different ways um, for logistical questions just on like you know, schools aren't used to having to-go containers, right? So if you're delivering food to kids at their houses via school bus, like, how do you do that, right? So there are some interesting things that happen with that. But on the nutrition aspect, um, the schools are still, you know, if they're feeding kids, they still have to meet certain nutrition guidelines to be able to make sure that they're hitting nutritional standards from a certain percentage of whole grains to a certain amount of vegetables, fruits, um, and protein sources. So um, you know, the school system are still being able to get a lot of those great meals to people and they're doing it in a multitude of different ways from um, some, some are doing even kind of meal kits, kind of blue apron-ish, you know, but uh, most of them are doing kind of, you know, you know, a standard meal that you'd get at the, at the uh, school, but they're not only doing it for the kids, they're doing it for the entire family which really kind of opens up things. Um, when they were in actual school systems, you did see a lot of the, um, the educators starting to inform themselves about nutrition. Um, and when, you know, you look at teachers, that's great to be able to have them teaching lessons on nutrition and really kind of reaching outside of the classroom. You know, one of the things we started doing very early at Whole Kids um, was giving garden grants away. So kids actually knew exactly where their food was coming from. So if they planted a seed, they watered it for a couple months and it comes out and they get a food source um, to see exactly where their food is coming from. Um, I think that kind of educational, um, you know, portion of school is great because you can take the classroom outside and you can learn all kinds of things that relate to science and nature uh, just by looking at a school garden. Um, you know, and we also have advocates that people don't think about um, the food service professionals, you know, they uh, formerly called the lunch lady, um, you know, the, the food service professionals are uh, really on the front lines every single day and they don't get as much credit as they, they should um, because they are huge influencers in what a kid can eat. Um, you know, if, if they are going in uh, a program where they're doing scratch cooking, typically you don't have 100% scratch cooking at every single school. You have that transition like I was talking about earlier. So if you had a, a kid that came through the line and every single day had chicken nuggets and french fries on their plate, not to say anything's wrong with either of those foods, but if they did it every single day, and um, say Maria, who made a lasagna from scratch that day, was like, hey, I made this lasagna from scratch today, you should try it. Just that little tiny sentence that she said there could influence that kid to try the lasagna and have that freshly made lasagna for the first time. Um, and they would, might love it, you know, and that's a huge shift from what they did in their, you know, their heat to serve kind of thing every single day. And um, in that same vein, if that food service professional has a little bit more knowledge about nutrition, they can, um, you know, be like, they can explain a little bit, but you'd have to do it in kids' terms, saying you're, you know, like the eat the rainbow is a great thing that kids understand. Um, or if there's something green in that lasagna, like spinach or something, they can say, you know, it's a great thing to be able to eat your greens. Could you, you get a lot of nutrition um, out of those greens and you would out of a lot of other things. So I think it's a, a wonderful way to be able to talk to kids about food by serving them what they're getting through those school systems, but also talk about the, the food that they're getting at home. 
Um, we talked about the hyper-local part as well. I think that that's something a lot of people don't think about is eating in season and um, you know eating as close to the source as you possibly can. Um, if you're eating in season and you're eating as close to the source, um, you're getting more nutrients, but you're also getting more flavor out of it too. So really getting a big punch of flavor out of that food um, equates um, that you're getting more attrition out of that food too. If it has that, um, you know, fresh off the vine, the further away it is from, you know, uh, the vine, if you think about tomatoes in the middle of December, like it doesn't really taste like a tomato, but you have that same tomato in September, you're going to get a huge amount of flavor for that. And I think people start to understand that just from the flavor profile from getting that. If you if you try to have them try the tomato in both those months, they're going to start, uh, you know, having some light bulbs go off and be like, I'm starting to understand this a little bit. Um, so I think that that's a great way to be able to talk to people about food is really kind of focusing on a little bit of nutrition and looking at ways to diversify their food that way. Yeah, again, I was just, you know, listening to you speak and kind of reliving some of the last few months and some of the conversations I've had and um, even interactions I've had with my own kids and my family around food and I've been working from home for the better part of a decade and my whole family is now here, of course, at home. Um, and just thinking about that reality and what it means for someone like me who cooks and we're already food people versus someone who, you know, I, I think, you know, to that point, Sarah, who wasn't uh, accustomed to having that meal at home, who went off and just had lunch at work and their kids ate lunch at school. And maybe the only meal they shared together was dinner sometimes, right? Maybe not even most nights. Um, so I think if it's done nothing else, the pandemic has showed many people, not all people, there are still lots and lots of families who don't have the pleasure or luxury of being able to be at home together during the pandemic. Let's not forget that. But for many families, their meal patterns, their um, togetherness around meals has really shifted. And I've heard from a lot of um, moms and dads that I know in my circles, um, just how much they've learned about their kids and their kids' food habits and food preferences by being forced to be with them all day and have free meals and snacks and all these things funneling through their own kitchen, not through someone else's kitchen. They're realizing number one, like how much people eat and all that it takes to prepare and clean and prep and, and, um, and all those things. And for many people, they're actually finding some um, amount of joy or pleasure in parts of it. I wouldn't say all of it. It's certainly a lot of work. I, I do it. I cook, I clean, I, I try my best to keep up on it. I, I realize how much it is and I'm, I'm fast. I'm, I'm efficient, right? Um, so, so it's tough. But I think that the fact that it's actually creating new room for different conversations about food is incredibly positive. Um, it's creating new types of questions and answers between parents and kids about why do you like this? Why do you eat this? Um, giving people a real sense also that um, food habits and preferences are far from static. I think we have this idea that we're somehow like, um, you know, marked from birth on the sorts of foods that we like or don't like based on our parents or based on where we live and these sorts of things. I find the opposite. I find people, the more they're exposed to different things, the more open they are to new things and realizing that, yeah, maybe those Brussels sprouts that my dad used to cook were like undercooked or overcooked or not seasoned well or not seasoned at all or just really spicy or gosh, he used ginger. I don't like ginger. I like everything else, but not ginger. Like it's good to know those things and to have those experiences. Um, so much of this for me has been around listening to people and understanding 
how their narrative around food has changed. I kind of chuckle when Dan was referring to the, the sourdough craze back in March and April, you couldn't even find yeast and you couldn't find flour. You couldn't like, so it was everything sou you know, sourdough this, sourdough that. Um, that in itself, the fact that we can kind of collectively nod our head and say, yeah, we all were talking about that, or that became something that people who never even talked about sourdough were talking about is sort of a little tiny pinpoint on um, the ability for food to shape that conversation, for it to have some meaning outside of just the act of consumption. Yeah, I think that's such a that's such a compelling point. And something that you you both mentioned kind of offline uh, previously was the idea that your your taste buds change every week, and that you never know when uh, food's going to taste different. So you have to keep trying and try and try again, especially with kids. Um, I think that's a, a compelling place to um, kind of we have to start kind of wrapping up this conversation. Have time for probably one more question, but I want to end on a high note, given that today is a bit of a stressful day, kind of for all of us. So I wonder if you guys could leave us with what is making you hopeful about the food system right now? Where do you think, um, you know, yeah, what's giving you hope as you look ahead to the to the next, you know, few decades in food? Well, I think, you know, just looking at what our kids are asking, I think is a huge thing that's making me hopeful. Um, you know, they're asking where their food came from. You know, they're asking if they can help with the food. Um, you know, I think that that part of our food system um, or that that part of our lives is going to change the food system. And I think that's a huge uh, hopeful thing to be able to look at, because the more kids ask questions and the more we can answer them with those, um, the more they can take that and really grow on it. Um, I'm seeing an entire generation of young adults that are really, you know, like they go to a grocery store and they turn the box around to see what ingredients are in it. And the previous generation never did that. They looked at the advertising on the front of the box, but never looked at the ingredient label to be able to see that. So seeing, you know, young adults start by doing that is a huge change. And I think that, um, you know, the generations underneath them too are still doing those same things. So seeing kids that are really interested in where their food is coming from, how it's made, uh, what other things are in it from um, different chemicals to GMOs to all kinds of things like that, I think is a super hugely, um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to see. And that makes me super hopeful um, for food uh, in the upcoming generations, just seeing the, uh, the questions that the kids are, answer, are asking about them. Yeah, gosh, that's great. Um, you know, one of the things I'm really hopeful for is, um, you know, I think very similar to what Dan said in terms of the, the types of questions people are asking, you know, what is that relationship to food that you have what attributes meaning to you in your food? Is it something about the environment or health or where it comes from or who grew it or how it was grown or the story that came with that food? Um, but I think, you know, for me, the overarching thing that I, that I look towards as being very hopeful and really a positive development within the food space is for me, the shift away from the celebrity chef as the entertainer to the celebrity chef as a advocate, an activist, a person who can stand up and be a voice for the worker who had to cross the border undocumented or for the worker who has to pick vegetables at you know a wage that none of us can even really conceive of or the type of grit or determination it takes to keep a restaurant open right now given 
everything involved with the pandemic and the cost of doing business and everything else. And the fact that we now have, um, you know, chefs who really represent this country, um, women and men, young and old, um, from all different backgrounds, who um, can have a platform and are, you know, beginning to develop really impressive and incredible, inspiring ways of changing these these narratives that we have around food. And to me, that's just incredibly inspiring that um, young people today who think about becoming part of the food business don't just think about it because of the glamour or glitz of being on a TV show, but think about it from the perspective of, well, gosh, can I be like Jose Andres? Can I go feed people during a time of need? Can I be a chef who's concerned about health and help people turn around their heart disease? Like these are the sorts of questions that people are asking now about food. And I just find it uh, tremendously exciting. Absolutely. Uh, what a perfect kind of ending to wrap us up on. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you so much to all the members of the Crusonia Conversation community who followed along with our conversation today. I also want to offer a big thank you to Dan Merrick and Ken Rubin uh, for joining us for this conversation and also to iSelect Fund and our other partners, which include Benson Hill, a partner of the Community Foundation of Greater Memphis, Cushman and Wakefield Commercial Advisors, EY, United Health, and Methodist Lab Owner Healthcare. I just want to remind everyone that Crusonia Conversations are free to attend, but unfortunately not to produce. So please consider donating to the Crusonia Fund. You can do that at crusoniaonthedelta.org or click on the donation link in your follow-up email. Uh, and if you're looking to revisit today's conversation or to keep the Crusonia conversation going, be sure to follow our LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and most importantly, our very lively Slack channel. There are always comments going on there, always good conversations. Uh, I am in there often, so hopefully I'll see some of you all there. And we also invite you to tell us what you liked or thought could be improved about this presentation in our follow-up survey. Links to all of these resources will be available in the email you'll receive following this event. So thank you all for joining us this uh, another for another great Crusonia conversation. We'll see you all again soon.